ever since I've been fascinated by the way in which he's gone from being this like 15 year old kid to now being 23 running his own VC firm. Hello and welcome to our Thursday morning doer series with Grand Theft Life. I'm Brock and I'm here with Joel Shackleton. This profile series is dedicated to highlighting individual millennials who are breaking through the typical stereotypes and courageously using new technology to make an impact and improve their lives. For more information and links to their stories and social accounts, go to grandtheft.life and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Welcome podcast listeners to a new episode. Today's episode, we're going to be chatting about a super interesting young fellow by the name of Harry Stebbings. Um, I think that this guy's unique in in so many obvious ways, but the reason why I think he's so incredible is not because of what he does for a living, but how he got there and how he got there so quickly. This person was actually introduced to me by Brock ever since I've been fascinated by the way in which he's um, gone from being this like 15-year-old kid to now being 23 running his own VC firm and um, writing some pretty meaningfully sized checks to some really interesting startup businesses. Kind of want to hand it off to Brock to kind of do a little bit of a, a dive into the origin story of this guy. But um, I'm, I'm pretty excited to chat about him because I think that this um, Harry is somebody that has taken a unique approach to achieving success. So I'm going to hand it off to you, Brock, because you know him better than I do. <laughs> I may push back a little bit on the idea of it being too unique. I think one of the main reasons I wanted to highlight him is because he represents the exact qualities of people that we love highlighting. He is consistent as hell. He's done so quick backstory. He started the podcast when he was 18 after citing that he watched The Social Network, my favorite movie. No wonder I like this guy uh, as his favorite movie. But he didn't like the whole story of Facebook. He liked one specific scene. And that was when Peter Thiel handed 500 grand to Mark Zuckerberg as the first investor. And obviously made him a billionaire. But this was when Harry Stubbins was 13. Five years later, he's in his first semester of law school in London. And decides, you know what? I'm dropping out. This podcast thing seems to be going well for me. And he's been doing it five years. And his 2850 episodes yeah that's like on like an, a phenomenal amount that's that's more than like it's more than simpsons have got out that's like the production insane. of his requirements but like so there's no doubt that he's consistent that's one of the biggest things we look for courageous is another big one it's like probably the hardest i think like curious is i think everybody's kind of curious pretty much by by nature for him he wanted to be a venture capitalist and understanding that early in his life is was obviously a gift because he decided he wanted to just interview people that were already doing it. But the consistency, I think, is a unique one. And then the courageousness is also unique. To be 18 in a, in a world like you can speak to this probably a little bit better, Joel, but in a world that's dominated by old white guys, you know, yeah. like the, the think... saying, the saying goes, I think you, you think you're too young until you're then you use the excuse you're too old. Yeah. Did you it... did you feel that at all when you were getting into finance? Oh, definitely. It's like the the cart before the horse sort of thing, chicken before the egg. Um, it's it's the same the same narrative is um, entrenched in finding your first job, right? Where it's like you need to have five years experience, but how do you get five year experience without actually working? It's the same thing when it comes to 
any dynamic in business. So like when you're trying to go and you're trying to manage someone's money and if you're a 26, 27, 28, 29, 30 year old fellow, it's really difficult to convince a 50 year old to um, work with you because just by nature, they're looking for the 65 year old that has a ton of experience, right? So like there's, there's this 18 year old kid who's effectively identified the industry he wants to get into, but the industry itself is dominated by 55 to 75 year old white men and he is while white and a man 50 years younger than these people and um he he kind of that's where like like you're you're saying he's like incredibly courageous it takes a lot of nuts and a lot of um courage to go and um assert yourself and like and and almost own it and tell these people that they should be on your on your podcast yeah. you, they should give you their uh, the time of day and that you um have earned it but i mean i i won't say that he th- that this is luck i think he clearly is incredibly well prepared too yeah the thing you know is that i you can start a podcast and you can do whatever it is that represents the tasks that you have to do to to get where you want to be but i think there's also still a, a way of almost hiding that you really are going all in. And one crazy anecdote to his story is that the very first podcast that he did was with Guy Kawasaki. Yeah, that's crazy. So he was 18 at the time. And then he literally just cold emails. And I think this is is kind of interesting feedback as well. When he was talking about this on a different podcast, he says, I didn't just email Guy Kawasaki to say, come on my podcast. I had zero, zero guests. I didn't even have a podcast. He just emailed him and asked for feedback. I started a conversation and then three emails in, he says, Hey, would you mind coming on a, a podcast? Like, you know, having a conversation with me and, and me recording it. He said, sure. You, you know, you seem like an interesting kid. And then he used that as leverage to get his next 10 episodes. What do you think about that like, strategy in general? Do you, do you swing for the fences first or do you kind of ease your way? In? Man, I, I think that the cold email game is an art in yeah. so many ways. It's it's almost as though you're feeling out your the person that you're you're talking to um, without actually speaking to them. So you have to do so much research into understanding who this person is, whether it be like their Facebook, their business, um, the past business ventures, and like get an idea of what most people in that situ- situation acts like. But generally speaking, I think most um, entrepreneurs and business owners are very open to helping. It's so his courage to ask this guy for, I don't know, an hour of his time to interview him on his 20 minute show. Um, I mean, he, he, I think he identified that this guy has been willing to give me three emails. Um, I'm going to up the ask and go for 30 minutes or an hour. And, um, with the understanding that he's also very willing and just have to read his lit. Like I, I mean, one of the first business books I ever read was rich dad, poor dad. I don't like to admit that, but it's true. And it was in in a sense influential, but this person is very, just in that, the literature there, he's very willing to help young people. And like, I don't know if he knew that or thought about that, but in rich dad, poor dad, that is exactly what happened. You have a rich dad and a, well, and that had took, <laughs> took the kid under his wing and showed him the ropes. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, 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 there's a lot to, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but. So for a little bit of additional context to his podcast, I imagine a lot of people haven't heard of this guy before. He, not only has he done 2,800 episodes, but 
it's known to be the largest media asset in venture capital. He gets 10 and a half million downloads a month. But it's insane the scale of reach this guy has. Literally, he's getting now at this point emailed by every single venture capitalist looking to be on his show. I just listened to an episode he had Ashton Kutcher on. He's had, if you know about Bill Gurley, Fred Wilson, he's had everybody on his show. And again, he's 23. So I got a question for you, Joel, around around that, which at a like a macro overview, I'm always curious about how he pulls it off because really he's interviewing his competitors. It's almost like, you know, Fred Wilson or these guys are coming on, giving their clout to him. And he may wind up in deals that are, you know, where he's competing against these people. I know it's probably not the case in some of those massive venture capitalists, but like he's interviewing his peers. And I think a lot of times people have that conception that if you interview your peers, then you're competing. And that's not something you don't want to give a platform to somebody that you may end up competing against. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, my thoughts are such that... Um you should always have a good idea of what your what your the people you're going up against are um, are doing. Yeah. If you're unwilling to help and or um, ch- talk or share your ideas, um, they're probably not that special in the first place. And the greatest flattery is obviously somebody um, uh, mimicking you, right? But it's um, one thing for you, like let's let's. I know this is probably harsh, but like, let's use you as an example. If you had a podcast segment where it was just financial advisors in the Alberta area and you bring a bunch of guys on, it's one thing for you to be smarter than them or like talk about things that are a new angle. But I think it's a totally different thing for all those people to want to be singing your praise as well. How does he balance? I don't understand how he gets all his competitors to be his biggest advocates. Well, and and this is where I don't actually think that that's how his biggest. I don't think they see him as a competitor, and I don't actually don't believe that um, A sixteen and Benchmark and all of these big, massive and Sequoia, all these massive funds go into this and be like, we can't talk to each other. We're right. dead heat against one another. Yeah. Like Jamie Dimon gets in a room with the CEO of Goldman and Morgan Stanley and City. They get in the like. I just don't think that that's how they view that. They they see it as more of a a marketing from a marketing perspective. They need to go to where founders are listening. Mm-hmm. And they know that this guy owns that space. Um at the beginning, I don't even think they saw him as that in yeah. the first place, but I think now today um he's more valuable from a marketing perspective than anywhere else. If Let's say you have like, and quite frankly, I think a lot of founders choose VCs, especially when you have a good idea based on the way and way they, which they think and they treat their founders that they're, they're funding. Yeah. Right. Like it's, if you have a great idea, you have the pick of the litter in terms of venture money. Yeah. You know, I mean, in, in the case of Travis Catalanic and Uber and why, the reason why he chose um, Bill Gurley um, at his, at his fund, it was because he, he was the man. He was the he, he was constantly writing. So he had his blog what was a, a, um, above the above the crowd. Yeah. And this was like Travis Catalanic was addicted to this guy. He read everything that he put out. He was a different thinker. And the best way to show that you have something new is to constantly put it out there. And to me, one of the loudest voices in venture is 
um, is Harry, right? So eh, I, I don't see it as competition. I think they see it as an opportunity. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing any, something, but I don't think so. It makes sense. It's just crazy to me how all it seems like everybody comes on as a fan of his. You know, yeah. and there's so much good sentiment around what he does. And there's so far, I, it, I also think that the um, venture scene is very progressive yeah. in the way they think of things. Like they're the first to go open concept offices and then back again because it's actually a stupid idea. But like they, they adopt things quickly. And I think it's fairly new thinking and progressive thinking to share ideas rather than hoard them. Yeah. I you have know? heard a lot that in Silicon Valley, venture capitalists do place value on long-term, obviously like Naval, like long-term thinking that, that, you know, it's a small world and you're probably, probably going to run into somebody multiple times if you stay in the industry long enough. I think I'm just coming at it from a perspective of like a realtor or something in a traditional sense, you know, where to me that sentiment is always zero sum. I think, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard no, to, but it's not. I actually think it is of being um, positive sum. Yeah. Cause when you hoard it, it's zero. I think you're right, yeah. So, I mean, we're always wanting to play the positive-sum games. Zero-sum games is socialism and garbage. All it does is cause violence and, and non-progression. Um, if you need things to grow in order to be, get better. So, um, you don't grow in your own brain. You need to have that, that leverage, whether that be um, additional people, um, additional audience, or just different... Uh, different um, uh, perspective. different perspectives those levers are important to positive sum creation <laughs> so speaking of that using other people's audiences there was an opportunity that he had when he was 2016 there was a large blog that was in the um, software space enterprise software space that was wanting to he reached out to them actually suggesting that he produce a podcast for them obviously wanted to get a little bit more enterprising with his podcast i don't think he really made any money from it until he had to actually i don't know if you heard this part of the story but his mom has ms and when she had to go to the doctor and had a large bill he hadn't up until then monetized his podcast at all but then decided he was going to to, to be able to fund that but mm -hmm. the question is more so around distribution so he goes to this company in the united states that has a notable software as a service blog and produces 30 episodes but then the owner of this blog says, you know what? The sound quality wasn't good enough. We're not putting any of these out. Do you, I know we talked about this a little bit offline in terms of sports primarily, but there's been so much talk lately around vertically integrating media channels. So, you know, even companies that aren't media companies trying to own the entire channel from the, the their customers ears all the way to their product. Do you, do you think like, what are your thoughts around that in general? The beauty of it is, is that you have, this is such a hard, like a hard thing to, it's such a hard uh, thread to pull on and then build off of because there's so many ways you can go with it. But um, just like distilling it down and assuming like if you own the base, you're able to stack blocks in areas in which um, you can um, identify from the beginning. Like if you have all these users jumping on your platform, um, you get to see from a data's perspective, a data perspective, um, what's working, what's not working, which gives you early advantage to seeing what's what's going on. 
Um, Facebook has the ability to be like, oh, people are loving video or they're loving this type of video or they're loving this or this or this. And then they have the ability to get really, really, really good at that and then vertically, vertically integrate, build tools for more people to do more of that because it actually has that um, that uh, that flywheel effect where it continues to feed the business underneath and make everything better. Um, the idea is, is that you end up getting um, first access to all the important data and then you can beat the tool builders to the punch and create more and more and more and more and more. Um, the reason why I think it's important to own distribution is because you get to choose um, the way in which the story is told, right? You know, like it, it, you don't want to send out that podcast to a marketer who will then develop it for you and then they put their spin on it because nobody knows you better than you do usually. Right. Or nobody know, knows what you want your story to be better than you do, right? Like, I wouldn't trust somebody other than you to be putting out our podcast because, like, nobody knows us better than we know ourselves. At least we know we've identified what our goal is with this. And um, I don't trust somebody else to do that unless they have the the, the incentives in line to to truly um, take it amongst them or upon themselves to understand. And generally speaking, people don't, at least when you don't own distribution. I don't know yeah. if that's it does, like, so the reason I asked about it is because I, I hear that anecdotally from a lot of these these podcasts, just investment podcasts where distribution, you gotta own the whole thing. But the yeah. understanding of why I think is a little bit more cloudy for me. Cause it, it seems to me like it's just a lot of extra work for you know, I I look at it from the other, like the creator's perspective. So if you're you know, uh, got a makeup channel or you're a gamer or like, you know, I mean, there's so much leverage going to the side of a creator these days. So these conversations are coming up more and more. It's like, okay, now do you pull Kylie and wait and build your audience, build your own product, go that route? Or, you know, I mean, there's so many opportunities for smaller media brands to own part of your business. I mean, I think at times what would part of life you in, like there's so much nuance that has to go into that decision because I mean, if you make the decision of of doing what Kylie Jenner did, like you got you got a lot of work ahead of you, you know. Like it's not easy to build that supply chain that she built. Like she had to find all these incredible advisors to help her put everything in place. Yeah, like it is not easy to do just because she had 150 million followers on Instagram, just because she has a famous family, just because yeah. she's beautiful, does not make building that out easy. Man, so I just. I literally just watched a podcast today or not a podcast or a video on this guy who started snow teeth whitening. Okay. It The only reason I bring it up is because he kind of comes at it from the opposite end. He's not the influencer, but he leveraged the influencers. And I think it's one of those things you see. I don't know. I see ads for those things all the time. You know, the ultraviolet like teeth whitening thing. Yeah. But the story behind it is, is actually crazy. And in, in terms of, you know, it's very similar actually to the native deodorant thing, the dollar shave club thing where, in the early days, like these guys are purebred entrepreneurs. You know, yeah. I mean, they're not like influencers. No offense, but, like you know, I mean, they're not they're not the people that are like you and I that are just putting out. They're they're guys that are they got their ear to the ground. They're like Sam Waltons that are crawling through the department <laughs> store to, like with their measuring tape. Like he was talking money about how. Widgets. Yeah, exactly. He was talking about how he would literally make sure that, um, or he would include a phone number, and with for the for the. First few thousand orders, anybody that spent more than 200 bucks, he'd call them personally when they got the package and be and literally say, you know what I mean? Like, what could you what could this how could this experience be better for you? Yeah, that's crazy. Nobody's willing to do that. And that's not the only things that you find out 
when you go behind the scenes. So to bring it back to Harry, this is kind of what I found from him as well, where you see this enormous media asset, which is so impressive from the outset. And for some reason, I think it always go in my mind anyway, it always goes like, oh, he got lucky. Everybody's on his side because he's young. Everybody wants to be supporting a young kid, obviously. But then you realize when you listen to the story, oh, he spent five years, an hour every single night DMing every single one of his followers. And that's how we made the relationship. That's how he's, I mean, he's just putting in the work where nobody sees it. And I, I love hearing the back end of those stories because then it, it adds credibility to the whole thing, I think. Yeah. Like you, he has such a strong relationship with his viewers because of the ridiculous amount of groundwork he had to lay to do it. Like you don't get to have as many friends as he probably does without putting the effort in. It's just like, you don't get to have 20 great friends if you only see them once a year. Right. So it's just, everybody wants all the, all the, all the value without any of the work. And it is, I mean, a lot of these things are distilled down to very similar um, traits in these people. And this kid is like the definition of hustle. You so know? we kind of established the hustle thing, but I guess from your investment hat, wearing your investment hat, what do you think about the, cause I know there's probably some people that have thought about the idea of rising like a micro round or like a, you know what I mean? Cause he raised $50 million with a guy named Fred Destin, who is a former partner at a big VC firm who is, mm-hmm. you know, had multiple successful big exits. And of course, you know, Harry's got this big audience, so he's in demand. 50 isn't tiny by any stretch of the imagination. No, I mean, you can write a lot of meaningful $250,000 checks with 50 million pounds. I know that the the strategy around that where you plant three, a lot three of seeds. Three, three, and three. What's that? Well, the trick's three, three, and three. Yeah, tell me about it. Well, you got, you got, you need three that are absolute hammer bombs, nukes into the home runs. You got three that, that perform with the market and three zeros. So you make nine bets, you got th- like three Ubers. I think if don't you if you hit three, don't you just need one Uber? And well, then you the basically just need one Uber. I should say that not everything's Uber, not everything's <laughs> Facebook. Lots of things are Stripe, lots of things are Square, lots of things aren't like five hundred k to forty five billion, right? Uh-huh. So that I should put a caveat in there. Um, when we're looking at home runs i'm talking like you put you buy into a business at a five million dollar valuation so this company's worth five million bucks you put in you put in 500 grand now that company five years to seven years later because that's usually your your lockup and duration of that that uh that fund that 50 million dollar fund you put 500 to work and that company now sells in five years for 300 million there's a home run nuke into into and you're you're running the bases. The next ones are like decent businesses that the next three are just like they're 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 staying afloat. You're not losing all your money, but you're making a little bit of money. Who knows how long they're gonna take? Let's hope we can find someone else to like jump on top of this and take our, we can get out of this. The other ones are zeros. Like literally they go from you put you bought into this business at a five million dollar valuation. Um, you put a million in, whatever it might be, 10 million, whatever. Um, and it goes to zero. These guys aren't hitting, they aren't trying to hit singles. 
the, so that must be understood when you are thinking about venture capital. This isn't the, the business that I live in. The business that I live in is like you want to hit um, 45 singles Bunts. every year. Yeah, we're just bunting all day. But who cares? That's how you play in the playoffs. That's how you get runs in. Dump and chase. But, yeah, dump Drop and chase. Bang bodies. Head on a swivel. What are they, whatever they say. But like to, to come back a little bit um, from like the perspective of like how was this guy – uh, where was his entrepreneurial uh, mindset? Why is it different? I think what he has that not everybody has is that he identified new levers in business. What does that mean? You kind of hinted at this earlier. You said this kid noticed that um, the value is in audience. And we've been talking about this lots on this podcast. Value. There's a new lever in town, and it's social media and audience. It used to be capital, labor, and um, artificial intelligence or, or uh, code. Those are the three. I think there's a fourth, and it's audience. And um, I think that he was well, media. Naval did say that one. But social media. But yeah, I suppose. Okay, fine. Deal. All right. <laughs> let's let's do it. We're gonna throw it right in there. I I tried to pull it out. I'm wrong. It's media. But uh, putting your name tag on. That no, it is not mine. <laughs> This is absolutely a Naval Ravikant thing. And I, it's just like, it's brilliant because these are new, right? Before it used to be, if you didn't have capital, you didn't have labor. Yeah. You now had this like brand new thing called code. So you could learn how to do it, build a company from scratch. And you didn't have to get a bunch of other people to give you money. You were able to provide that leverage yourself and win on your own. Well, now I think that that we have this thing called like, yeah, media, social media, and this beautiful thing of, of audience creation. And you can go and try and find those people that have it and then provide value for, for them and then grab that leverage for yourself. And he did that with his podcast. Do you, this is a random question. Do you think, because I was reading through the thesis that Destin and him have for this new venture fund, and I think that he kind of emulates this quality, but I'm wondering if you think it's necessary for somebody to build a media or you know, asset or audience. So they ask everybody not just what you would be doing if you weren't do- if you weren't doing this business, but they ask themselves, are you the type of person that's going to reshape this specific industry? Do you think it's necessary, or can you like do you have to be fully prolific? I I think that the bunt game is just that minnows game. You don't have to be prolific. There's it's not a. I mean, in in so many in so many ways, um, if you want to be a billionaire, I do think you have to be prolific. It's, or you have to be willing to take the 50-year game. There's like there's many ways to get there, but if you want to get there fast, you got to be prolific. If you want to get there slow, you can hit bunts and get there too. And the way in which you do that, you do it in little pieces. It's consistency over speed, and um, speed and like high velocity. So, I mean, to answer your random question, I don't think that you necessarily have to. <laughs> have to. Um, there's lots of ways to do it. If who knows, there's tons of guys out there doing it and girls they're 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 going out there buying commercial real estate or uh, they're getting involved in oil and gas companies while they're also doing this or that. and they're they're they have plenty of irons in the irons in the fire, but and not a single one of them will be that um, nuke to this guy. But you put them all together, add them all up. And you you were at a very similar place, so 
No, I don't think that you have to, but um, it is definitely a new avenue available, and it it's fast. It's very fast. And I got another you know, random question for you, business. Just because, because I like random questions. So, can, okay, we're talking about media audiences. Harry's got this big audience, and I think that's kind of what your goal is too, right? Build an audience. Um, you want to be able to reach people with, you know, your message. But do you feel encroached on or i don't even know what that word is but do you feel like when people come and back into the industry based on an initial fame the reason why i'm asking this is because one of my favorite episodes on 20 minute vc is with ashton kutcher and he's famously one of the most active celebrities in venture capital investing in startups so i mean i thought his episode was they're all doing it though man they're all doing it so but that's my point is like are you mad at them do you think it's you think it's no, like whatever use what you got if you're hot don't don't fool yourself into doing something that doesn't use what you got like like shake what your mama gave you you know and for like ashton kutcher he's pretty so he went into acting he got famous made a ton of money and now he's doing what he loves who cares how he got there i mean kobe bryant had his own fund before he passed away um like you're telling me that like Steph Curry isn't gonna do the same thing? All these guys are obsessed with venture. Like they all like that is the new thing. Like, oh, you want me to come to Brooklyn Nets? Well, I mean, I wanna be I, I gotta I gotta have I wanna be a partner at Benchmark. And I'm gonna send a I'm gonna start I'm gonna I'm gonna sign a three year with the Nets. I wanna have access to everybody that Jay Z's got and is like you all of these things are now like becoming one and it's all and who cares who cares like how you got there i mean it's probably likely that um steph curry is not as good at investing in tech companies as josh wolf is but but he definitely drives an audience and that is useful to mr wolf so like let's get together why not like everybody like, so you're saying everybody should be filling out an application for the bachelor it's basically <laughs> well if you don't have any good ideas and you're not willing to put in the, the work, Bachelor's not a bad idea. I think Bachelor might be the best idea. If you... The amount of people <laughs> you need, that you have need made... A, you need a, 2 million followers on Instagram. Bachelor is the best way to get there. And like, whatever. I'm not here to knock the hustle. There's like, there's lots of ways to do to do it. I'm just not... I'm not... There's no way I could do that. Honestly. There's no way. I get roasted. I do not have the body to be on The Bachelor. Jeez, those dudes are hot. Can't, can't. Definitely, definitely not Love Island. <laughs> yeah, they're they're like triple hot. Anyway, he's super cool. He has the coolest glasses. I'm happy you introduced me to him. Everybody should check out his podcast if you haven't already. Twenty Minute VC. It's amazing. Yeah, there's some episodes that I think are interesting for everybody, especially. If you are raising money, if, you, if you're in that world at all, if you have a startup or you're working for a startup, I think it's interesting to know the context around what the other side of the coin is thinking in terms of what they need their money to do in that business. And um, yeah, they, he shines a light on it in a very consumable medium. So go check out 20 Minute VC. Right on. All right, buddy. I'll chat with you on Sunday. All right. If you made it all the way to the end, thanks so much for listening. Again, if you want additional context to the people we're highlighting in this Doer series, you can find links to social accounts and anything else we mentioned at grandtheft.life. 
We'll be back next Thursday morning with another Millennial Profile. By the way, this should be common sense, but this podcast and our website are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Joel does work for Gold Investment Management, and all opinions expressed by him, myself, or any podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of GIM. Clients of Gold Investment Management may actually hold positions discussed in this podcast. Have a good day, everyone.